0: about you and never actually listen to you. That can really get under our skin, can't it? Yet that's the way many relate to God. Created by God, we were created to be in a relationship with him, to love him, to worship him. Yet many, even if they say they worship the true God, the God revealed in his son Jesus, relate to God on the basis of their assumptions about God not on the basis of what he has said about himself and what pleases him. And so they do for God what they think God should be pleased with, whether that's burning candles or repeating ritual prayers or bowing down to statues or retreating from the world or having an obligatory 50 minutes of singing at the beginning of every meeting. They relate to God on the basis of what they think God should be pleased with and not listening to God when he tells us what pleases him, the worship, the service of him, that he finds acceptable. But to relate to God on the basis of what you think should please him is firstly unwise. In fact, it's really dangerous. You see, God's not like us. He's Lord. There's no reason why he should be pleased with anything less than he commands. There's no reason why our ignoring what he says to do what we think he should be pleased with should not provoke his just anger and judgment and we cannot plead good intentions. For in doing what pleases us and ignoring what he says, we are making ourselves Lord in that relationship. It's rebellion oh and secondly that pattern of relating to God breeds a dangerous unreality it makes us think that we're right with God because aren't we worshipping God when we're not we're actually provoking his judgement and thirdly it is unnecessary for God has told us clearly what he finds acceptable the worship, the service that pleases him And so this morning we're going to think about what God says makes our worship acceptable. And we're going to think about what is the content of this acceptable worship. And the goal, well, that we would be people who worship God acceptably, who day by day gives God the worship he's pleased with. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Thus, thus means by this means. The CSB and NRSB bring out the sense of the Greek phrase which is through which, and they bring it out clearly. You see the CSB, It is by thankfulness, let us be thankful by it, we may serve God acceptably. By thankfulness, we serve God acceptably. In RSV, by means of thankfulness, we offer God acceptable worship. Sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, thankfulness is so attractive. It's such a humble and honest virtue, not self-preoccupied, but directing attention away from itself to the one to whom thanks is owed. But our author is not speaking of thankfulness in general. No, he speaks of thankfulness for something in particular that is the means of acceptable worship. He's speaking of thankfulness for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which is a thankfulness that only believers in Jesus can have and show. So there can be no acceptable worship of the living God without confessing Jesus his son as Lord, without faith in the gospel. But let's think more about this thankfulness through which we can worship God acceptably. Let's think of the what, the who, and the how. So firstly, what are we thankful for? Well, it's thankfulness for something we receive, isn't it? A gift, the gift of what our author calls the unshakable kingdom. Now that kingdom is the eternal reign of God's Son revealed at the close of the age. Now Hebrews hasn't to this point said all that much about this future kingdom but from the beginning Hebrews has revealed Jesus as the Son, the royal son of David who is a royal priest-king like Melchizedek. He is king always, king to whom everything will be subjected, the heir of all things. And we got a glimpse of the goodness of this kingdom, of this time of Christ's reign in verses 22 to 24 of chapter 12. But to remind ourselves of how good that kingdom will be, that time will be, of how great a gift this kingdom is, let's just take one image from those verses that spoke of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, is something our faith in Jesus brings us to. Listen to the final vision of Scripture, which is a vision of that heavenly city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then at the end of that vision, we get a glimpse, as it were, inside the city. And we see the river of life flowing from the throne of God and the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nation. And then verse 3 heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall... Sorry. Oh, my eyesight. I should be, from verse 21, but it is from verse 3, actually. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now this vision, of the heavenly Jerusalem, is a picture of that kingdom that God is giving to those who persevere in faith in Jesus. No curse, no death, no pain, no grief, all things new, access to the tree of life to see the face of our God. And here in Hebrews, he describes this kingdom as one that cannot be shaken, as unshakable, By that word, he's stressing the permanence of this kingdom in contrast with all that belongs to this creation. All this created order, our author said in verses 26 and 27, will be shaken, and in being shaken, removed forever. But this kingdom is unshakable. It remains. Now think for a moment of the goodness of this promise, of the wonder of this hope in a world of transience, where all is loss. I mean, this creation is a place where there's so much good, isn't there? So last week I, I had gastro, and one of the real pleasures of last week, it wasn't the gastro, it was actually starting to recover and going out for a walk. You know, the sun had come out, went down past the Plenty River, the rainbow lorikeets are back. I could feel the warm sunshine on my skin. The sky had been washed clean by the showers. You know, there are some days when you just feel how good it is to be alive. And when you feel that good, you also feel the grief, don't you? That one day it will all be lost to you either gradually with fading eyesight or strength or through human folly and greed or then through death. Oh, yeah, I went home and good food and human love and you think life is so rich, but it will all be lost. Every achievement in which you've delighted, the company you built, the piece of art you laboured at with such care, the house you designed and built, those children you're pouring yourself into, it will all be lost. Vanity, all is vanity. That's how the preacher summed it up. Fleeting, like a mist, there but unable to be grasped and held onto and then gone. And that is human life. But believers in Jesus are receiving the unshakable kingdom, life and light and love that are permanent, abiding. And unshakable also speaks of the purity of this gift. It remains because it's unmarred by our sin. No regrets, no mistakes that need to be undone, nothing defiled or tainted, permanence, purity, oh, and presence. Here God dwells with his people. That is why it's the unshakable kingdom. As the psalmist said, God is in the midst of her. This new Jerusalem shall not be moved. This is God's gift to believers in Jesus, the unshakable kingdom. And that's reason enough to be thankful, isn't it? Because it's a gift without comparison. But our thankfulness has only increased when we think of ourselves, the who, the recipients of the gift. Now, as believers in Jesus, we confess week by week that we're sinners, aren't we? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But that's probably become an easy confession for us, a confession that's lost its horror and offence. Yet, if it were not for Jesus, it would be a shameful and despairing thing to say, I'm a sinner. Because it's to say that we've been ungrateful, proud and rebellious. It's to say we've taken God's good gifts of intelligence and strength and language and used them to defy our good creator. It's to say we've received a good world from God and then marred it by our selfishness and pride. It's to say we've disfigured his image in ourselves and each other by hatred and lust and anger. And yes, to say that I'm a sinner is to say I deserve God's just condemnation, death, to be removed from this good creation forever, to experience hell. Yet it is to us, sinful people, who by God's grace have believed the gospel that Christ has died for our sins, that God gives this unshakable kingdom. And isn't that a cause for thankfulness? Oh, and our thankfulness is increased not only by considering the gift and the recipients of the gift, but also by remembering the how. How our Lord Jesus has secured this unshakable kingdom for us, fitted us for this kingdom. Now, the book of Hebrews has spoken much of this. In Hebrews 2, we've been told how the Lord Jesus took on our flesh and blood to defeat death, by his own death. In Hebrews 5, we've been told how Jesus was equipped to be our saving royal priest through learning obedience through his suffering. Hebrews 9, how Jesus has dealt with the offence of our sin by his offering of himself on the cross once for all. You know, we say the words, Christ died for our sins. But can you feel the goodness and greatness of Jesus. Can you feel how undeserving he was of that death? How costly this sacrifice of himself. You know, when you think of what the what and the who and the how of this gift of the unshakable kingdom, we should be thankful, shouldn't we? Let us be grateful. Thankfulness is the proper response to what God has done for us. And thankfulness means that you get the gospel and a lack of thankfulness actually means you probably not. You see, thankfulness means you understand the gospel of God, that God has given his son for you to give you what you do not deserve, enduring forgiveness, life and love. Thankfulness means you believe the gospel, that Jesus' death is for you and that in trusting him you are forgiven. And thankfulness means you feel the gospel and you feel it even when you might also feel low or lonely or sad or anxious because in all that you can still be thankful for you are receiving freely from God the kingdom that cannot be shaken, not on the basis of how you feel or your achievement or but only on the basis of faith in Jesus and understanding, believing and feeling the gospel you worship and are sustained in worship of the true and living God, the holy God who is a consuming fire so let me ask you do you give yourself time to be thankful thankful not just for the great goods of this life, health and sufficient money and home and friends, but actually thankful for the unshakable kingdom? Do you give yourself time to remember with thanks the gospel? Whether that's together, say, in our sharing together in the Lord's Supper, or whether it's in daily routines like grace, giving thanks over meals or whether it's in those private times as you feel the impermanence and the grief of the sin of this world, do you give yourself time to be thankful for receiving the unshakable kingdom? You need to, because it's by means of thankfulness that we can worship the living God acceptably, with reverence and awe. Now the word translated worship here is in other places in Hebrews translated service and that gives you a feel for the kind of worship spoken about here. You see, this word's been used in Hebrews of the priests and Levites' service in the tabernacle. Their service, their worship, was doing what God had commanded them. So it wasn't about generating a certain feeling. And it wasn't primarily about singing or even praying, though for some of them it involved that. Their service, their worship, was doing exactly what God had commanded of them in offering the sacrifices and maintaining the tabernacle. It wasn't doing for God what they thought he ought to be pleased with. They'd realised that that was very dangerous. But doing for God what he had commanded. Now understanding worship as service, reading service here as we can, in this way is actually very helpful for it helps you give content to your worship. It is doing what God has told us to do. And we need that direction because worship's become a term in our culture that people can fill with all sorts of content that they've just learned from their church culture whether it's, you know, being quiet when you enter church, that's worshipful, or thinking that somebody who leads singing is a worship leader, which is also bizarre, but some people think that, right? Just assuming that worship is what you've learnt in your church culture. But you see, service directs you to God's word for the content of your service. It prompts you to ask, What does God command? And that content, the commands of God for his people in Jesus, the worship he finds acceptable, is what our author is actually about to make clear in chapter 13, which is why I had it all read. It's by means of thankfulness that we can serve God acceptably. And that thankfulness for the kingdom should be a feature of our everyday life, not just special times. It's an attitude, not an activity, an attitude that should accompany all our service, all our obedience, including our singing. And thankfulness sustains the reverence and awe that should accompany our service of the living God. (coughs) Now, reverence and awe, is not a matter of long prayers or trying to generate a certain feeling. It's actually a matter of the seriousness with which we do God's will, where we dread to disobey him. We serve him with reverence and awe. And thankfulness is the source of this reverence and awe for thankfulness for the gospel and the gift of the kingdom actually reminds you of who God is, the Creator and Lord whose will is done, reminds you of his holiness, his hatred of sin, reminds you in the cross of his justice, his determination not to overlook sin, reminds you in the resurrection of his might, reminds you of the day when all will be shaken. Oh, reminds you that our God is the same God who spoke through the prophets who appeared on Mount Sinai to Israel. That's right. Our God is still the awesome holy God revealed at Sinai. There's not a different God in the Old Testament and the New. We serve the same God. The God who spoke at Sinai is the God who speaks in the gospel, and our author, quoting Deuteronomy 4:24, reminds us that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jealous means he will not abide his people giving what belongs to him, their love and loyalty, their service or worship to any other than himself. It it actually reminds us that God will especially not tolerate idolatry, the worship of created things in place of the creator, or relating to him as if he were just some dumb idol, who has not made his will known, so we're free to do what we like to please him. To think that is to think that God is a dumb idol. This reminder that it's the same God who spoke at Sinai and who speaks in the gospel should actually increase our gratitude. Now wonder at what God has done for us in Christ. You see, he's still the holy God, and yet we're no longer distant but can approach him and by faith can come to live with him. Oh, and this reminder that he is the Holy God should also increase the seriousness, the earnestness of our worship, our service. We should be diligent to conform it to his word, for the only worship God accepts is the worship he commands. But notice, it is not terror of judgment, but thankfulness at being spared judgment. That is the means of sustaining our serious, reverent service. The life described in Hebrews 13. God's people have always known this. Listen to the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about that. See, if you are struggling, to do what God says. Say, love your neighbour or live a sexually pure life. God says both those things in chapter 13. If you're struggling with serving God, worshipping God in the way he commands, well, yes, you do need to remember the awesome reality of God. But you have to recognise that at its foundation, your struggle to obey God has its origin in weak or lack of thankfulness. See, if you're not thankful, it means you've discounted the gift, the unshakable kingdom. You've lost the wonder at how precious it is and you've just become preoccupied with the passing things of this world. If you're struggling to be thankful, you've discounted your sin. You've forgotten how ugly it is. Oh, and you've discounted your saviour and started to think it's a small thing that the Son should take on your flesh and blood and die for you. So if you're struggling to give God the worship he commands, what you need to do is renew your thankfulness. You need to look at the gospel again and work out whether you actually believe it, that Jesus died for your sin and then practise thankfulness. And worship, service, will flow from that. But what is the content of this service? What's the worship God commands of his people? Well, chapter 13, as I've said, makes that plain. Our author covers lots of things very briefly because he knew he was reminding his first hearers of what they already knew. But we're actually going to take chapter 13 pretty slowly over several weeks, just glancing at verses 1 to 3 today. What's the first thing God says makes up acceptable worship? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You worship God acceptably with reverence and awe by firstly and above all continuing to show brotherly love. Now our authors deliberately use this word brotherly love to talk of the love we are to show to each other. In the ancient world, this word brotherly love, Philadelphia, was used for and was restricted to sibling relationships, which were seen as the closest and strongest relationships, even closer than the relationship between a parent and child. Speaking of this love as brotherly love, reminds us that God has made believers in Jesus into his family. You see, Jesus uh, taught that. He said to his followers, you are all brothers. And the gospel promise is that we become children of God. And Hebrews has reminded us that it is sons that God brings to glory. And we are now Jesus' many brothers. And so as you're sitting here, you should look around at the believers next to you and think, we are family. And God expects us to love each other as members of good families do. In making brotherly love the first part of the worship that God finds acceptable, our author's actually are only repeating what Jesus had said, that love of each other, is to be the mark of his disciples, loving each other as he has loved us. But let's think, what does it mean to be real family? What does it mean for us here to be real family? And we can't just answer that from our own experience. For family differs from family. And expectations of family relationships differ from culture to culture. So so what picture of it, in a sense, do we get from the first century? Do we get from Scripture? Well, there's always an expectation of loyalty and an obligation to care for members of the family. It involves time and possessions, a willingness to use what you have for their good unselfishly. You're meant to look out for your brothers and sisters, to promote their good in relationships or work. Oh, and in good families... They'll always be an affectionate welcome. They're glad to see each other. We ought to think about that. Are we good family to each other? Now, I think the answer is sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Sometimes we fail. But whatever it is, this is what God commands And it needs a conscious commitment to think of your brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, as family. A conscious commitment to know them, to stay in touch. A conscious commitment to include all. Because that's what families do, isn't it? They include the awkward uncle, the difficult niece. They're all included. And this is important to love with brotherly love. You see, you can't think you're worshipping God by carving out time, say, to come to church or even read your Bible daily if you are not loving each other with brotherly love because this is what God commands. This isn't advice. And we've just heard that we need to be serious. Serving our God who is a consuming fire with reverence and awe, serious in conforming our lives to his command. Now the passage features and emphasises two aspects of brotherly love. One, as we'll see, is hospitality, and the other is the care of prisoners. Do not neglect to show hospitality. The word translated hospitality here is literally love of strangers, those whom you don't know. Hospitality is making room for another, for the stranger in one's place. And it is talking about strangers, people you don't know. So hospitality in the New Testament isn't entertaining your friends, right? Hospitality is commonly commanded and practised in the New Testament church. Uh, To spread the gospel, evangelists and apostles travelled around the ancient world And the ends of the ancient world had a dreadful reputation as being completely full of immorality. So missionary work depended on private hospitality. Listen to John in 3 John. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. We know the Apostle Paul was the beneficiary repeatedly of such hospitality. But of course it wasn't just missionaries who needed hospitality. There were those who were fleeing persecution, those who'd had their prophecy confiscated. And hospitality is one of those things mentioned in Matthew 25, along with visiting prisoners, as noted by our Lord as marks of love for him. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Now, this command embraces, first of all, believers, but it should also overflow to our neighbours. We have many opportunities amongst us to show hospitality, including sometimes, say, to the friends of our children whose relationship with their parents might have broken down. But but think of the opportunities we have. Well, we have people who come to us, say, students from the country or who have... Parents visiting and their children's place has no room for them. There are our Iranian brothers and sisters who have no family. There are students who come from overseas amongst us. There may be even people who need a place to stay because of marital breakup. And we should be the ones who take the initiative to offer before they speak of their need. Hospitality is sharing space and time-sharing activities, making room for strangers in your life. But some of us have a struggle with hospitality. Perhaps even dismiss this command as being for others who do have the space and time, but not for them. And that's a problem. You see, how can you say you serve God with reverence and awe when you read his command and say it doesn't apply to me <coughs> that'd be like an old covenant believer saying oh i know god commanded the sabbath but i don't need to keep it that ended very badly so let me ask you a few questions how do you see your home do you need to rethink the way you see your home which is god's gift to you oh i needed to so I grew up in a very middle-class family with very busy parents in people jobs. So what did I learn? I learned that home was a retreat. That was where you were safe from people and their demands and needs. It was a place to keep people out of. Now, there were reasons for that, <clears throat> some sense in that. And there are seasons in life But hospitality is still commanded. Isn't it better to see your home as a means to hospitality for loving by sharing the good that God has given us? So how do you see the home that God's given you? And how are you teaching your children, if you have them, to see the home God's given you? And think about it, what makes you reluctant? Is it fear of strangers? Is it anxiety about whether you'll have enough time or food or space? Well, let's think about the time one. If you are too busy to do what God has commanded you to do, does that mean that you are just too busy full stop? You need to think about that. Oh, do some of the things, do some things actually need to go from our lives to make the space to do what God has said? You see, he has commanded hospitality. He hasn't commanded that you need to, say, spend all your time playing computer games or if you've got children, ensuring your children's lives are full of activity. Now, at this point, let me repeat the warning I often give. Test all things. Especially here, you see, the shorter the passage and the more it has to do with application, the more discerning you need to be. But I'm trying to help you think about what God has said you ought to do, how it applies to you. I'm not directing you in the specific circumstances of your life that only you know, but you do have to grapple with God's word that says, don't neglect to show hospitality. It's important that you think about how you can obey this command, how you can show hospitality, not list your reasons as to why you don't need to. Now, perhaps on your own capacity, uh, you know, you're very limited in being able to show hospitality. You're single or frail or... There are all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't, say, have people staying with you. So you should ask, who can you join with? Who can you support? to show hospitality. If a family has a couch surfer or are hosting parents from the country visiting their student child or have contact with groups of students from overseas, can you share? Can you share in the cleaning or bringing a meal round or even offering to mind the children, help them run a barbecue? And we're given a motivating clause, aren't we? For thereby some have entertained angels This is a recollection of the experience of the Old Testament saints of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. Abraham, who received the promise of Isaac's birth from his guest Lot, who was rescued by those to whom he opened his house in inhospitable Sodom. It's a reminder that God is sovereign in whom he brings to you and you don't know what God is doing in bringing them to you but you can trust that your God is working your good in their coming and you can obey him by loving strangers. Now, if you want ideas about hospitality and its power in a post-Christian world to commend the faith, let me recommend to you that TGC podcast. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield's written a book on the subject, but the podcast is actually more accessible don't neglect to show hospitality. And then our author moves on to prisoners. He says, remember, he moves on in a sense to talking about people who could be forgotten. And we're good at forgetting, aren't we? Out of sight, out of mind. Now, at the moment in Australia, there are not many prisoners for the faith, or, though there are those who become our brothers and sisters while in prison. And there are prisoners for the faith overseas, and we should not forget them. We should pray and provide support. And if you want to be informed about that and how you can help, contact a group like the Barnabas Fund. But you see, there are others amongst us who can be forgotten, who can drop out of sight. There are the sick, those who go to hospitals, those who go to nursing homes. It can be hard visiting them. But they need family, their brothers and sisters in Christ, to care and to look out for them. And there are the poor, people whose poverty makes it hard to participate and people can become suddenly poor through family disruption. Oh, and there are those who are transferred to isolated areas or going home to non-Christian families overseas. People so easy to forget but people we have to make an effort to pursue, to stay in touch with, to care for. We're to remember that we must treat them with brotherly love and that we're equipped for that by sharing in the shame, flesh and blood, having a common humanity that will guide our love. We'll serve God. Worship God acceptably by being thankful for the gift of the gospel, that unshakable kingdom every day, and be sustained by that thankfulness in having the relationships of family love the gospel commands. Be serious about showing brotherly love. Our God is a consuming fire. And as I was reading this passage, I thought, You know, sometimes I get this right. You know, sometimes I show love, show hospitality, I remember. But I also thought there are actually times when I could do better. And you know, I think that's true of us all. Sometimes here we get it right. Oh, and we do have some good examples amongst us of people who give themselves to love and hospitality and not forgetting those who drop out of sight. But actually, I think as a whole, we could do better. And so, hear God's word and do better. These words are not advice or an ideal. They are the commands of the God, our God, who is a consuming fire, saved us by the death of his son, who calls us to give ourselves to his will with full seriousness with reverence and do all. So talk together, friends, family, each other. What would it mean for us to love like family? What would I change to love my brothers and sisters here like family? Who, who can I practise, say, hospitality with? Who can I show hospitality to? Who can I remember the forgotten, with and then love not out of guilt or fear but out of thankfulness for receiving the gracious gift of God, that kingdom that cannot be shaken out of thankfulness for having been loved by our brother Jesus so generously so effectively and forever let's pray